All right, artist friends, welcome to the second episode of the Becoming Human podcast, where we gather with humility and gratitude to explore how to use art as a tool for self-discovery. This is Jared McHugh. In this episode, we're going to look at art and self-discovery through the lens of death and emptiness, which I'd, I'd like to cut to the core of things with Becoming Human, so you know, death and emptiness seems like a good place to start. And I'll say if you're one of those people who are afraid of being alone, afraid of silence, which is pretty much all of us, you know, if you walk into, into you know, maybe home after, after you get off work and the first thing you do is put on a podcast or TV or whatever, just something to fill the silence, um, you know, that's you. This, this episode's for you, people who are afraid of being alone and afraid of silence. So mostly all of us. So, so what does death and emptiness have to do with our lives and our art? You know, the short answer is literally everything, but we'll take a look at Ernest Becker's 1973 psychological and philosophical work, The Denial of Death, to gain a clearer understanding of the central role of these two often avoided topics. Okay, and I think it would be a good, to, good, a good place to start with an explanation of how I was introduced to this book. So I had a dream of sorts um, a month or two ago where I was out in the Colorado wilderness, totally exposed, unclothed, cold, hungry, overwhelmed by the vast open expanse of the Rocky Mountains. And I had this feeling of complete dislocation. I couldn't figure out where I was directionally, what time of day it was, how I could find food, water, shelter, you know, anything like that. I had no idea where the closest city was, just, just absolute dislocation. And the feeling was really one of, of complete, uh, complete exposure and, and, of course, fear. This heavy, yowling, incomprehensibly large and overwhelming capital F fear. And in this dream, there was a part of me that was willing to say, okay, fear, Let, let's feel it, let's be with it. This is the content of my life fully in this moment, so, so let's open to it, open to the fear. And... and really feel the texture and the vibe and, and color of this immense fear. So I opened to it, you know, I, I looked deeply into fear and, and it looked deeply back at me, right? You, you stare into the abyss and it stares back at you. And, and fear and I were in this dream, we were kind of in a, a sort of impasse and I eventually felt more at peace with, with the fear, you know, it was okay, fear, so what? What can it do? It's just a feeling. And with that piece, I was able to start seeing what was beneath the fear. The object now of, of what this fear was really coming from, you know, the thing I, I actually was most afraid of, you know, the root of this fear. And, and as that, you know, began to take shape, the thing I was most afraid of, it turns out, was, was nothingness, was emptiness. You know, the real abyss, death my own death, my own impermanence. You know, that was the fear. I'm going to die, you're going to die. And, and in, this, in this dream, I, I was confronted with that, you know, just confronted with my own impermanence, my own mortality. And, and the expression of that, the, the emotion that accompanied that, that kind of abysmal emptiness was just absolute fear. It was terrifying, and in in the terror of this abyss, I, I began to see culture arise, 
I mean, that was the weird thing. I, I see fear and beneath that was emptiness. And then, you know, coming out of the emptiness was, was culture arising. People banding together, almost like skydivers without parachutes, grasping hands to make a web. Or, or, or a mandala of falling bodies, horribly exposed in the wind and fury, but at least falling together. Or another image that comes to mind is, is Wile E. Coyote plummeting from a cliff and grabbing a boulder to stand on. But the joke, of course, being that the boulder is falling too. You know, what can you do? We're all plummeting toward emptiness and, and death. What can you hold on to? Literally nothing. So, so in this state, I saw culture arise, small groups of people with spears and furs and music and art and stories to bind to one another shelter themselves under a shared culture against the abyss. And now saying this, it, it comes to mind that perhaps culture, all culture, art, music, everything, is to the existential abyss what a roof of bound, bound together sticks and branches is to the elements. It's a way to feel secure and safe and sheltered. You know, culture as, as the hearth, as, as the hovel, basic shelter. You know, I think that's what, what art and culture really is. And after this odd sort of dream, I, I can report back that I don't feel any less afraid in the world. I, I'm deeply afraid of death, of emptiness. But I now carry an awareness of that fear, and, and with that awareness, more peace. You know, I'm in contact with that fear. It's not, it's not just dictating what I do constantly. I'm, I'm, it's more of a conversation. So just a few days later after this dream, I was telling my roommate about it. And she said, that's Ernest Becker. That, that's the denial of death. You know, check this book out. And it was great timing. I, I really do believe the right books come to us at the right moment. This has happened to me constantly in my life. When, when the thing I need to be told is just placed in my hands. It's, it's really uncanny. It's great. So let me give you a taste of, of Becker. Um, quote, Everything that man does. Oh, and I'll actually, excuse me for a moment, I'll actually also say, you know, it was written in 1973, so it's very, you know, mankind and man does this and that, that sort of language. Um, which, reading this in 2023, it sounds old and stuffy and, and gendered and dumb, right? Uh, which is all true. Um, but still, the content of his ideas is is great, and, and his writing is also great. So, um that's going to be coming up a lot during this podcast. Please excuse it. So, uh, quote, everything that man does in his symbolic world is an attempt to deny and overcome his grotesque fate. He literally drives himself into a blind obliviousness with social games, psychological tricks, personal preoccupations so far removed from the reality of his situation that they are forms of madness, agreed madness, shared madness, disguised and dignified madness but madness all the same. So that's Becker. And this is what I've been reading each night before bed lately. So, so imagine the dreams I'm having now. It's, it's been cool. And uh, overall, Becker's ideas are, they're pretty straightforward. So, so one, the world we gained consciousness in is terrifying. And two, the basic motivation for human behavior from the development of our own individual per personality structures to larger social institutions is a response to that terror. 
And of, of course, these ideas gain more depth and complexity in the book. But, you know, so what? Okay, like, life is fragile, and we react to that fragility. You know, did someone really have to write a whole book on this? It, it seems pretty easy, right? But the problem, Becker argues, is that because of this constant threat of the void, just the, just the terror, the sublime terror of, of life, we identify with larger institutions, you know, as a kind of safety blanket, or, or like I was saying earlier, as a form of shelter. In other words, I'm fragile, but this institution is large and stable. It will save me. We thus trade in our personal strength, power, self-determination, and our deep inner truth for the perceived safety and security of an institution, be it a religion, a government, a corporate career, your race, whatever. Think of someone you know who over-identifies with their job, where they're from, their NFL team. Or better yet, rather than thinking of someone you know who does this, see the ways in which you do it. Where do you over-identify or really just identify with something external to you? Ask yourself, why are you identifying with this external thing? Maybe there's positive associations with it. The feeling of inclusion you got from cheering for your family's favorite sports team. Uh, but go, go deeper than that. Why was this feeling of inclusion pleasurable? Never stop asking why. You know, like a little kid. And when you, when you keep asking why, the questions eventually point you toward emptiness, toward nothingness, toward your basic fragility and, and the fear that marches along with it. And again, this matters because we trade our own personal strength, power, self-determination, and inner truth for the perceived safety and security of the institution. However, this sense of safety and security is a lie. The institution is not exempt from impermanence. It too will die, whatever institution that is. Again, Wiley Coyote grasping boulders as he plummets. And of course, what happens when Wiley Coyote finally reaches the ground? Things get flipped over and the boulder lands on top of him. As long as you privilege someone or something else's power over your own personal power, your humanity is at risk. You're no longer human. You're the plaything of that institution. Think layoffs to save a few bucks for the already hyper-wealthy company or, or being discriminated against for your identity, you know, that kind of thing. And let me be clear, I'm not suggesting everyone go quit their jobs and live off the grid or whatever. If you want to do that, fine. That's great, but, but what I'm saying is that you want to make sure your life belongs to you and to no one else. You belong to you. When I say you must belong to yourself, this, this also does not mean isolate yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I have a lot of thoughts on American hyper-individualism, but that's another episode. And for now, the, the truth is we need others to survive today as much as we did during Neolithic times when we were running around with spears and furs. This is something marginalized groups have always known, and, and I think it's something, you know, is becoming new knowledge for more privileged groups who, who are perhaps feeling the threat of economic and social insecurity. I mean, we live in a hyper-isolated society, and I think, you know, a lot of people are feeling the impact of that and starting to value community in new ways. And, 
However, you know, the problem here is when a culture, when a band of people linking arms against the storm becomes a power structure, you know, that, that becomes an issue. Because it's when that power structure or institution forms, it then demands its members eliminate or repress pieces of themselves in order to benefit from the safety and security that, that the institution seems to offer. So sure, you can work a corporate job, attend your church, do all that stuff, that's fine. But make sure you are aware of the ways in which this is a transaction. This is to say it doesn't matter what you want to do with your life, you know, as long as what you choose to do comes from a place of truth and authenticity. But for that to happen, Becker suggests, you still need to go into emptiness to find whether that desire is yours or the result of social conditioning. So I think you enter into emptiness and make your peace with death, with the void, to whatever extent you can. And through doing this, you find out which institutional attachments are authentic to who you really are and which aren't. And as you gain some insight here, your inauthentic attachments be begin to naturally fall away, making room for a life structure better suited to you. I think, you know, I, I'm figuring all this out right now for myself. This is all, all an experiment, you know, give me like 10 years and I'll let you know for sure. But, but this is what I'm thinking right now. And, and I'd like to quote uh, with more length from The Denial of Death. I think I've made um, Becker's ideas pretty clear, but his writing's just hysterical. It's, it's just so fire, like, like complete intellectual punk or something like that. It's, it's awesome. Okay, so quote, What is more natural to banish one's fears than to live on delegated powers? And what does the whole growing up period signify if not the giving over of one's life project? What we will see is that man cuts out for himself a manageable world. He throws himself into action uncritically, unthinkingly. He accepts the cultural programming that turns his nose where he is supposed to look. He doesn't bite the world off in one piece as a giant would, but in small, manageable pieces as a beaver does. He uses all kinds of techniques, which we call the character defenses. He learns not to expose himself, not to stand out. He learns to embed himself in other power, both of concrete persons and of things and cultural commands. The result is that he comes to exist in the imagined infallibility of the world around him. He doesn't have to have fears when his feet are solidly mired and his life mapped out in a ready-made maze. All he has to do is plunge ahead in a compulsive style of drivenness in the ways of the world that the child learns and in which he lives later as a kind of grim equanimity. The strange power of living in the moment and ignoring and forgetting, as William James put it. The peasants, uh, and by peasant, uh, Becker means pretty much anyone who has not questioned their cultural conditioning. So the peasant's equanimity is usually immersed in a style of life that has elements of real madness, and so it protects him. An undercurrent of constant hate and bitterness expressed in feuding, bullying, bickering, and family quarrels. The petty mentality, the self-deprecation, the superstition, the obsessive control of daily life by a strict authoritarianism, and so on. Okay, unquote. So in other words, you know, sure, you don't have to enter into emptiness. You, you don't have to question the path that was laid out for you by the society in which you were raised. Maybe it's easier that way. 
You don't have to confront any grim realities about who you are, what our society is, and whether you're wasting your life. But you'll be at the surface of life, perpetually caught up in yesterday's gossip just to continue to distract yourself from the more fundamental experiences of life. Consume all you can for 80 years, then disappear. Is that it? It can't be. I mean, at least I don't think so. So let's bring our focus back to art. What does art have to do with emptiness and the abyss? <laughs> Which is a really funny question, but uh, what does art have to do with emptiness and the abyss? I believe art is a powerful tool for entering and confronting emptiness, which it turns out is one of the major blockages to creativity. If you're one of those people who knows deep down you have something worth creating, something worth saying, but you don't know how or you get stuck at the first step, there's a good chance you are deeply afraid of the emptiness that you must confront in order to make art. And to be less abstract about it, I'm talking about the white blank page, right? The silence around a musician when they first pick up an instrument. The creation of art necessarily requires a period of dissolution, of, of dissolving into the nothingness from which your art arises. And that's what really what artists do. I, I think we we go into that, you know, the underworld essentially and, and and come up with something new. You know, I mean there's so much mythology around that. But this is the white blank page. And it's intimidating. And if you don't build up your tolerance for emptiness, for that daunting sensation that accompanies the start of any real project, you'll be stuck there, potentially forever in your creative work and in your life. And it's scary, but there's absolute magic in this process too. The magic of watching something arise from nothing right before your eyes. It's incredible. And what's most beautiful about this process of confronting the white blank page in order to create something is that you're also learning to work with one of the underlying causes for any anxiety and fear you've ever experienced in your life. One of the beliefs I often come back to is that your art is your life, and your life is your art. There's no separation. To confront the white blank page is to come in contact with the larger existential emptiness that surrounds and seems to threaten your life, and vice versa. To enter into emptiness outside of an, art, outside of an artistic context, maybe through meditation or therapy or whatever, you become better at working with the white blank page when you do sit down to create something. You learn to take a deep breath and acknowledge your self-doubt and ask it to step aside so you can go ahead and make something real, something that matters to you and matters to the people around you. Art is the practice ground of your life. It's the microcosm of your life. Everything you experience in the creative realm is also experienced in your day-to-day -day existence because your day-to-day -day existence is inherently creative. Every moment is new and thus created from nothing, from emptiness. So that abyss, that, that white blank page, is really the soil and must be cherished and respected and honored if we're, if we're to ask it to produce something beautiful. Another way of saying this is that if you can create on the page, you can create your life. And if you can create your life, you can create on the page. So again, art and life are the same. There, there's no separation here. 
what's more is that art is safe. It, it's a safe space. It's much better to practice dealing with anxiety through a drawing in the comfort of your room, maybe with some music playing in the background, you know, than, than doing so in the heat of your job and relationships and anything else. Art gives you the opportunity to continually emerge from nothing and then die and be reborn over and over in a safe way. So that when these types of situations occur in your, in your larger life, you're more emotionally prepared. Okay, and I want to address how maybe, I think art and culture is, is a different kind of sheltering against the abyss than, than giving yourself to an institution. So I want to differentiate between kind of uh, the way I've been using, you know, the word culture and the way I've been using the word institution, which um, is slightly different than how Becker uses it. So I just want to clarify that. So uh, going back to our Neolithic analogy, of course, early humans had to link arms against the storm, right? They had to band together with their art and language and cultural traditions as they you know, faced the elements of life. And of course, in our day and age, we choose to get jobs with a good company or in government or, or with a university or, or any big institution like that because we don't want to be totally exposed to poverty. I mean, too many people are, you know, and that's terrifying. So, so to peel back all the kind of armchair philosophizing about the abyss and, and all that, the truth is we don't want to be exposed because it's fucking awful. You know, I, I don't want to be wandering around on the streets and then, you know, saying how, look, I'm exposed, so that's good. I'm gaining wisdom. I don't want to do that. That sounds awful. So I think it's good to, to link arms, you know, to identify with these bigger things. However, I think there's a difference between the analogy of the skydivers linking arms to make a mandala in the sky and, and wily coyote grasping onto boulders. One is a healthy expression and celebration of culture, and the other is just pure fear and ignorance. So to use your art to call out to and band together with others, as I'm doing right now, is, is beautiful. To use your art to find the others, to, to create a culture, to celebrate your humanity, even as we're all free-falling towards death, I mean, that's powerful. That's the definition of beauty, I think. On the other hand, clinging to boulders, to dead institutions that demand you limit and repress your deepest truth, that's something else. You know, that's something very different. Okay, and to be more clear about this, institutions, in the way I'm using the word, um, always demand that you limit yourself. So as Becker argues, you'll accept the cultural programming, or I'm going to say institutional programming just for the sake of clarity, the institutional programming that turns your nose where you are supposed to look. You don't bite off the world in one piece as a giant would, but in small, manageable pieces as a beaver does. The institution demands that you identify with only a small piece, one bite-sized piece of who you are, and that necessarily happens in opposition to another group. For example, if someone over-identifies with their race, right, with being white, they are white, that's who they are, and anyone not white is bad. You know, this is the way in which the denial of death creates racism, sexism, or any other ism. They're all shitty. Or perhaps in a more benign way, uh, your job demands that you cut up your time, which is to cut up your life energy into bite-sized pieces. You work for eight hours, play for eight hours, sleep for eight hours. 
An external force is structuring your life for you. For eight hours, your life begin, be, uh, belongs to someone else. That's not okay, right? I don't think it is. So in the foreword of, of the den denial of death, um, Sam Keen writes, quote, Our heroic projects that are aimed at destroying evil have the paradoxical effect of bringing more evil into the world. Human conflicts are life and death struggles. My gods against your gods. My immortality project against your immortality project. The root of humanly caused evil is not man's animal nature, not territorial aggression or innate selfishness, but our need to gain self-esteem, deny our mortality, and achieve a heroic self-image. Our desire for the best is the cause of the worst. We want to clean up the world, make it perfect, keep it safe for democracy or communism, purify, purify it of the enemies of God, eliminate evil, establish an alabaster civil, city undimmed by human tears or a thousand-year Reich, unquote. Anytime the human being commits themselves to an institution in exchange for a sense of safety, all things outside that institution becomes a possible threat and worthy of attack and destruction. This is the small-mindedness that I firmly believe practices and art can help free us from. And this is the project of becoming human. This is the thing. So it's like William Blake, who, who I greatly admire. He's probably going to come up constantly in, uh, in these podcasts. But, but William Blake wrote, If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. To become more fully human is to cleanse your perception and enter into your own inf infinitude. This is the path of all true artists, which of course you are. The emptiness we so deeply fear, Blake suggests, is not external to us, it is us. Welcome the part of you that is death, that is the abyss, that is emptiness. Welcome it. Hang out with it. So to make all this talk and theorizing more actionable, here's a practice you can do to start playing with your relationship to emptiness in your art. So get out a blank piece of paper, the blank white page, and, and sit with it for a few minutes. And what feelings come up? And write those down. Then, after a few minutes, start to make something, a drawing, a poem, song lyrics origami, then, then pause. And, and what feelings came up as you began to create something? Was there self-doubt, second-guessing, exhilaration, boredom? And, and you can stop the exercise there. It, it's really just bringing awareness to the first steps in your creative process. But if you want to go further with it, make an entire completed piece. Maybe it takes you a whole day, a week. Maybe more, probably better if it's more. And then destroy it. Rip it up. Send it back to the abyss it came from. I mean, that's a powerful thing if you've ever made something for, worked on something for a month straight, and then you just destroy it, rip it up. It's, it's horrible. It's great. And, you know, acknowledge that, what feelings come up. I think there's grief in that. You know, so do these practices again and again and again. These practices are your life. All right, so that's it for this episode. Um, if these messages mean anything to you, 
please share them. Share them with your people. I believe deeply in this work. I, I really do. I mean, art, creativity, you know, using those things as a means of seeing ourselves. That, that's kind of everything to me. So, you know, it resonates with me. If it resonates with you, you know, it definitely will with others. So, so share it out. All right. I appreciate you listening to this. Uh, sincerely, thank you. And uh, much love.